This is our seven year anniversary, seven years ago, yeah. We launched this church. Many of you were there in the middle of a snowstorm, if you remember that, on 2-12-12. We sent out postcards that said, um, this day could change your life, 2-12-12. And everybody thought there was this cult, or what was this going on, right? Because who can predict that? You know, something's gonna happen on 2-12-12. And something did happen on that day. But I would say that something is continuing to happen. God didn't set up his church to be a monument, but a movement that would continue on to go on and on and on. And I would look back on that day this week a little bit and look through some of the pictures of launch day. And here we are kind of setting up. You know, we had the trailers. Some of you are part of that team, you know, set up and tear down. And we would, uh, during this time of year, when it's 20 below out, we'd have to go thaw the locks to the trailer with a torch so we could actually open them up. And we'd load that stuff in and there we are kind of setting up. And there I am in some sweet carpenter jeans. I was rocking those. Those are baller. And then we set up our kids area, which by the way, we don't just um, you know, do babysitting back there or childcare. We're teaching our little ones about Jesus on their level that they can understand. And so we had people that served on that team and they would set up like these crazy awesome like environments in a school and we would take, take over whatever space we could find, hallways, didn't matter, we would set up those areas. In fact, one of our last days before moving into here, you know, the, just the auditorium was packed and God was just blowing us away with, with more. He's a God of more. This is a God that wants to continually do, do more. And, and I look back on that time and I think, man, a lot's changed. And thank God it has. Thank God I'm not wearing carpenter jeans anymore. I know you're grateful for that. But I think a lot more has actually stayed the same than has actually changed. I mean, it's still this heart that drives us, the heart of God, to point people to Jesus because we know our world needs him now more than ever before, perhaps. Still this heart that, that people are our hearts that we will do anything to, to reach people, that generosity is our, our privilege, we say. Excellence is our calling, passion is our, our pursuit. None of that has changed. Maybe some looks of things have changed and the feel has changed, but the heart hasn't. And I know that God's just getting started. I know he wants to do more. I think we haven't even scratched the surface yet of all that God's going to do and through his church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the last seven years, but we know it's just the beginning. And we know that you, you say, don't, don't hold on to those things of the past, but, but behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm gonna spring up some, some new wells, some new rivers. I wanna do a new thing through you. And so God, we look forward to that in the years to come. And we know that you are the God of more. You want to do more in in our lives and through our lives. You also want to do more in the city. You want to do more through this church. You want to do more in our nation, God. So help us to come alongside what you're doing and to be a part. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. And we look forward to you doing more today right here. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. Hey, before you sit down, tell your neighbor God's got more. Go ahead. Sit down and say, God's got more. God's got more What? I don't know. I just wanted to say God's got more. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to be. You can use your iPhone. You can use your iPad. Of course, you can always use your eyeballs because that's going to be up here on the screen behind me. But Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is giving this speech. And while, while you're looking for it, um, I, I want to say this. I don't think you can always determine the greatness of the speech uh, of a speech that's given just by what's said in the moment. You have to look at what happens as a result of what's said in the moment.
For example, Martin Luther King, right? Uh, his speech, I have a dream. You know, that one day people will be judged, you know, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's an incredible speech. It was incredible in the moment, but it was even more incredible, not just because of what was said in the moment, but because of the movement that was created out of it, right? The civil rights movement and how things have, have gotten better. We're still a long, long way to go in that, but, but it was amazing. I want to submit today that the most incredible speech ever given was given by Jesus right here in Matthew 16. And we can argue all day, you know, what the most incredible speech was, but I'm telling you that it's right here. And it's right here, not just because of what was said in that moment, but because of the movement that it created, the movement that came out of it. If you're there, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, go ahead and underline that, bold that in your text, whatever you have to do. It's phenomenally important uh, to this text, he asked his disciples, what do people say about me? Who do people say I am? Which, by the way, uh, if you want to know what people say about you, go ahead and ask them tomorrow at work. Hey, what do people say about me? You might not like the answers, all right? Just throwing that out there. But he says, who do people say that I am? And they responded by saying, hey, some say you're John the Baptist. I don't know if you remember John the Baptist. Some say you're him. Remember that crazy guy that lived in the woods in a van down by in the river? You know, that was John the Baptist. Ate locusts, wore camel hair. You know, he was a kind of a wild man. Some people say that you're him. Or what about Elijah? Some guys even say that you're Elijah. Remember Elijah? Elijah was the, the prophet who had his word stopped it from raining for three years, caused a drought. And then he challenged these false prophets of, of Baal and Asherah on top of this mountain and, and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah on one day were executed. 850 prophets like died in a single day, right, out of this challenge. Some people say that you're him. Some people say you're Elijah. Others still say that you're Jeremiah, not the bullfrog, all right? Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And by the way, it's really easy to answer that question, when Jesus asks, who do others say that I am? But then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, is the most important question everybody in this room is going to have to answer one day. Who do you say that I am? And if you don't know, this is the day I'm praying that you nail this down and get it right. Because you can't get away from this question. Every single person here. What about you? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. I want you to remember that. If we have time, we're coming back to that. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Verse 18 then says one of the most incredible statements in all of history. And I tell you, now that you are Peter. So right there, he changes his name and he says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. This is a promise of God that he's going to build his church and that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I'm here to tell you something that Jesus is a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. Because over 2,000 years ago, he made this promise that he was going to build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And that's exactly what he's done. Like there's no other company, there's no other organization that has outlived or outlasted the church, the church is growing. And there's been a lot of uh, what we would consider some great companies, innovative companies, right, that we've seen here in America even 
that aren't here any longer that we thought would stand the test of time. For, for instance, Blockbuster Video. Anybody remember Blockbuster Video? Like they had the slogan, wow, what a difference. Wow, it's gone, right? It's no more. Because they couldn't keep up because things, things changed. Like uh, you used to go to Blockbuster Video and rent um, VHS tapes. Anybody remember what a VHS tape is? Some of you are like, ask your mom, all right? Ask your mom. As long as she's over like 40 or something like that, then ask your mom. Uh, what about Kodak? Kodak's not here anymore. It's not Kodak, right? We're gonna take, you know, that's gonna be around forever. Or Montgomery Ward. Anybody ever shop at Montgomery Ward? There are things that we thought would be around forever, like that would stand the test of time, but they're, they're no longer here. Uh, another one, Millie Vanilli. <laughs> or what about Brad and Angelina? Brangelina. Like if they can't make it, none of us have hope, right? I just think, we, we think these things that are gonna be there forever aren't, but the church, in this promise, Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. And the church has not only survived for the last 2,000 plus years, but it's thrived to where now over 2.3 billion people on the planet say that they are followers of Jesus. His church is thriving. Now here in America, I read some stats this week. And if you look at any given year, I think this last year, there were around 5,000 or so, we'll just make it a whole number, churches planted in the US. And we had about 4,000 close their doors. So at first glance, you're thinking, all right, well, that's good, right? That's a net of 1,000 churches. It sounds good until you realize that the, the, the population growth in America really outpaces the church to where if we were just going to maintain the percentage of people that actually attend a church on a weekend in the U.S., we would have to plant 10,000-plus churches every single year. And people would say, well, it looks like the church is in trouble. It looks like the church is in trouble. I'm here to tell you, I don't think the church is in trouble. I think hell's in trouble. Because this promise that Jesus made, that Jesus will build his church and that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now, you might be saying, all right, Colby, um, that's great. What's that got to do with me? What does Jesus building his church have to do with me? And I think that's a fair question because many times we'll come to church and we'll say, all right, that was interesting. That was a great history lesson, you know, about the church and about all that kind of stuff. But what does it have to do with me, I believe this statement that Jesus makes um, should matter to every single person in this room, every single one of us, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you why. In fact, I'm gonna give you three reasons because I love outlines, and we're gonna follow that. Three reasons that this statement, that what Jesus is communicating here in Caesarea Philippi should matter to us, and the first one is this. Jot it down. It means he's not afraid of your mess. Jesus isn't afraid of our mess. He's not afraid of our, our mistakes. He's not afraid of our past, right? He's not afraid of our mess-ups or hang-ups. Notice what the Bible says in verse 13, when they came to the area of Caesarea Philippi. Now, let me explain why this is such a big deal. Anytime the Bible mentions a geographic location, you should pay attention because it probably has some sort of importance. Um, and let's look at the area where Caesarea Philippi was. Everybody say map. I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map. That's a shout out to Dora the Explorer, by the way, all right? Anybody, Dora, Dora, swiper, no swiping? Anybody? Okay, all right. By the way, and this is just how my mind works, but Dora does not rhyme with explorer. <laughs> Whoever started that, that was crazy. Um, Caesarea Philippi was at the northernmost part of Israel. 
And it's in a mountainous kind of rocky region. And Jerusalem is all the way down here. So you see that's the Sea of Galilee. Then that's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem on this map would be somewhere around this location or so, something like that. And it would be about a 10 to 14 day walk from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi. And here's why this is fascinating. Because Jesus didn't announce that he was gonna start his church in the, the center of religious activity in Jerusalem. He didn't announce he was gonna start this, this movement where, where everybody was all about religion. Everybody was all about putting on a show. All the religious scholars, that's where they were. No, he went north. He went away from Jerusalem to announce that he was gonna start his church in Caesarea Philippi. So what's the big deal about that? Caesarea Philippi was considered to be pagan territory. And in fact, good Orthodox Jewish people, they didn't go to Caesarea Philippi. Because if you went to Caesarea Philippi, it would have made you unclean and unclean to worship in the temple, unfit to worship in the temple. Colby, why would it make you unclean? Because there was some junk going down in Caesarea Philippi, all right? Let me just tell you, it was messed up. It was way more messed up than the person you're sitting next to today, all right? Kind of messed up. Messed up. Because in Caesarea Philippi, there was this cave, and the Greeks there kind of set up this polytheistic kind of worship. You know, they worshiped multiple, you know, false gods. And, and they believed that where this cave was, there was this crack. And this crack of, in this cave was called the Gates of Hades. And they believed that spirits would ascend and descend from this crack. And so they built this temple right on this, this cave, right on where this crack is. And they worshiped what was called the goat god Pan. And the way you worship the goat god Pan was by fornicating with goats. There it is. Now, now, I say that, and nobody in this room is thinking, well, we shouldn't judge them. <laughs> you don't know what they've been through. Uh, you know, maybe they were lonely. You know, nobody's thinking that, right? Everybody's thinking, that's, that's not good. Like, I, I've never had that phone call, and I've gotten a lot of crazy phone calls from people, by the way, but I've never had a guy call me up and go, hey, Colby, I got this problem. I'd be like, you do got a problem. You know, I don't know what to tell you about that. But why that matters is because it means Jesus isn't afraid of your mess. He's not afraid of your stuff. He walked away from the religious, and he walked toward this pagan territory. And that's where he announced that I'm going to build my church, I want you to understand, Jesus never walks away from a mess. He always walks towards it. In fact, anytime things got messy in the Bible, it seems like the, the more messier they became, the more he ran to it, not ran from it. And so Jesus isn't afraid of what you've done in your past. He's not afraid of what you've, you've gone through. He's not afraid of your mess. And I say that because I think that's unlike a lot of churches that we have in America today. They can be afraid of a mess. In fact, a lot of churches, if you don't look perfect or have it all figured out, then they might not ask you to return. They look for people who are perfect people living perfect lives. And, and until you become perfect, you know, go and fix yourself up. Then you can come back or at least until you learn how to pretend like you're perfect, pretend like you've, you've worked it out, then you can come. But that's not it at all. We don't, we don't clean ourselves up in order to come to God. We come to God in order for him to clean ourselves up, amen? We come to God so that his Holy Spirit can live inside of us and work inside of us so we can get cleaned up. And we've got this, this backwards. Because Jesus said that I came for not the healthy, not those that have it all figured out, not, not the ones that are you know, righteous, but I came for the sick. 
Jesus didn't come for perfect people. He came uh, for us, people who aren't, he, he wasn't afraid of our mess. I was thinking about that and thinking how just like a week and a half ago, we woke up in the middle of the night to Gray, who's our two-year-old, and apparently he had just puked everywhere in his bed. And Kristen goes in there, and then she's like, hey, you got to come in here. And then I, I open up the door, and immediately, you know what I'm saying, the smell, just a vomit. And I'm a sympathetic puker. Anybody else? If I smell it or if I see it, like it's over. But there was this smell, and uh, Grace is looking at me like this. He's kind of smiling, you know. I'm like, come on, buddy, I'm so sorry. Had I treated Gray in that moment like many churches peep, peep, treat people who are stuck in a mess, I would have said, what's wrong with you, boy? Why don't you clean yourself up? Get it together, man. Get a handle on it. But that's not my role as dad. You know what my role as dad is? Is to go in there, is to pick him up, is to embrace him, and so I held him, and I, I'm, I'm smelling around, and it smells like vomit. And then I look at him, and he has a pile of vomit all over his head. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there like. <laughs> Actually, I didn't. What I did was I took him into the bathroom, and I used my hands, and I pulled it off. And I cleaned it up, chunk after chunk, on my own, with my fingers, Right? And washed it off. Why did I do that? Because he couldn't do it for himself. He could not clean himself up. And so I did it for him. And you know why that resonates with so many of us? Because that's my story. That's your story as well. For those of us who are in Christ, listen, we could not clean up ourselves. We were stuck in our sin, in our vomit, in our shame, in our guilt. And because we couldn't do it for ourselves, Jesus had to come do it for us. And he picks us up, embraces us, carries us, and cleans us off. Amen. And because he's not afraid to do that, then we shouldn't be a church that's afraid to do that as well. Like we should be a church that also reflects the heart of God for people who are stuck in their mess. And by the way, I didn't continue to remind Gray that he had vomited the night before and say, you know what? You know, remember when you vomited? Remember when you vomited? And I say that because some of you, you got people in your life that are constantly reminding you of the past mistakes that you've made. Like Jesus doesn't do that. He picks us up. He embraces us. He, he cleans us off. That's what, a, that's what a father does. And so in this, we see that Jesus walks away from the center of religious activity from Jerusalem toward the mess. And when he gets there, he announces, I'm going to build my church. I'm gonna start a movement, a movement that's going to be so great that one day it's gonna reach those people that are in that temple doing that nasty stuff. I'm building it even for them, even covered up in their mess that they're in. And that, that gives me encouragement. Now, this is a, an environment, a church, where we're looking not to beat people up, right, but to, to build them up, to embrace them right where they are. And you should take encouragement in that too because Jesus isn't afraid of your mess. Now you might say, Colby, you don't know how big my mess is. Like I really messed up. I don't maybe know about your mess. I don't know what you've done, but I know who God is. And the mess that you've made, listen to me, is not greater than the price that he paid for you. And he gave his life for that mess that you think keeps you from God, and it doesn't. That he wants to save you. And he wants to restore you. Show me a Bible hero other than Jesus who wasn't a hot mess. Like, like read through scriptures. You know Moses? You remember Moses? Moses, yeah, he wasn't a mess. He was a guy that led, you know, the Israelites out of slavery into freedom. 
Actually, Moses, before that, he killed a guy with his bare hands, murdered him, ran and hid in the wilderness, all right? He was a mess. Think about David. King David, he was a mess. You know, he was an adulterer and a murderer. And probably worse, he was a harp player, all right? Throwing that in there, too. Like, he was a mess. Paul, who ended up being one of the greatest missionaries ever, planning, you know, so many churches along the Mediterranean rim. Paul, this guy who had this incredible relationship with Jesus, um, he was a mess. He didn't start out that way. He was a Christian hater, killed Christians, didn't want the church to grow, didn't want the, the movement of Jesus to, to continue on, but he had an encounter with him and it changed him. Peter, the guy in the story we're talking about, he was a mess. Peter had a, had a swearing problem, actually. And he was, he was kind of a rebel, but Jesus takes us right where we are. God will still use us. He's not afraid of your mess. You need to know that today. No matter what you've done, or where you've been, he's not afraid of your mess. And by the way, he's not afraid of your religious mess either. Because some of you, if you were like me, like you grew up in the church. I was born like into the church almost. Like every, every day when the doors were open, I was there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night choir practice, like that was me. All right, I was there every single day for the most part. Some of you were, took your first communion at seven or eight years old. Some of you were baptized as, as infants, right? You, you were born into the church. But what I realized later on is what I didn't need was a religious practice in my life. I needed the presence of God in my life. And until I met Jesus, even though I had gone to church and had the religious system down, uh, I didn't have a savior. And I didn't need that. I needed a savior. In fact, I was just as bad as the guys in the temple with the goats until I surrendered my life to Jesus. And so it doesn't matter your history, your religious history, whatever it is, Jesus is not afraid of our mess because he didn't come to give us a religious system, right? He came to be our savior because we desperately needed a savior, which is number two, write this down. Jesus is who we desperately need. Like we need him. Jesus is not somebody that's just a good idea, somebody that we, we just want. He's someone we actually need in our life. You know, a lot of times we'll say we need things. I'll hear, hear people on Sunday, you know, morning even say, I need my coffee. I need my coffee. I need coffee. You don't want to see me without my coffee. We make shirts, right, that say whatever they say. <laughs> I need coffee. You don't need it. Maybe you're a jerk without it, right? But, but it's not a need. I say every summer to Kristen, I need, I need a boat. I need a boat. I need a boat. <laughs> I don't get a boat. It's not, it's not a, a need, right? That's a, that's a want. And, but other times, you know, we, we don't realize how much we actually need something until we go without it. Um, take oxygen, for example. You don't realize how much you need oxygen until you're deprived of it, okay? Uh, I almost drowned twice in my life. One time I was in the James River in Richmond, Virginia. The other time was by a stupid dolphin at SeaWorld. That's the story for another day. But I didn't realize how desperate our need was for oxygen until I was underwater and I was without it. And I say that because Jesus is not just someone who's a good idea. Not just something that, that we want in our life to be a part of our life, but Jesus is who we desperately need. And I hear people come to church and say, well, you know, I don't really need him. Or if I needed God so much, then why would he allow me to go through this pain or whatever it is that I'm facing? Why would he allow me to, to go through this struggle in my life? Sometimes God will allow us to go through things so we realize our desperate need for him. 
He'll allow us to go through the valley of the shadow of death so that we can realize that we are dependent upon him. And he's not a good idea. He's someone we need. In fact, Jesus is the rescue for the sins of the world. We sang that song, the world needs Jesus, and that's why. He's not just a good idea. He is the only way to God, the Father. The world needs Jesus. And this is what um, Peter says. Jesus responds, all right, well, who do you say I am? And he says, you are, verse 16, the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the Son, he says, of the living God. Now, at that time, whenever you'd hear about the Messiah, what people thought was uh, the Messiah was going to come and be a Savior, kind of a political Savior, rescue the, the Jewish people from Roman oppression. And Jesus says, I'm not really here to do that. I'm not really here to be a political savior. I'm here to be your spiritual savior, spiritual Messiah. And I think it's funny that still today, we try to politicize Jesus. Did you know that? We try to align Jesus with a certain political party. And he's like, I didn't come to do that. I came to set you free. I came to save you. And people will say, save me from what? Colby, save me from what? Well, first of all, um, save you from going to hell. That's a good place not to go, by the way. Secondly, to save you from a meaningless life, to save you from hurting yourself, save you from staying stuck in sin patterns over and over again, save you from, from living that kind of life and giving you this full life that he has for you. And Jesus came as our savior, but we need to understand our need for him. It's not just a want. We have this need. C.S. Lewis says this, I love it. He said, either Jesus was a lunatic, he was a liar, or... He actually was the Lord. So you and I, we don't get the option of saying, um, well, I think Jesus was okay. He was a cool guy, taught some good things, but I don't think he was the son of God. Like we don't, we don't get to do that because if he taught some good things and he, you know, if he taught a lie that he was the son of God, then he didn't teach good things. But that's what he taught. He taught he was the son of God, that Jesus Christ is our savior. And some of you in this room, you desperately need him in your life. Maybe you've walked away from the church and maybe today he's calling you back. Maybe it's been weeks or months or even years since you've had a, a growing relationship with him and today you realize he's not just something that you want. He's something that you need, you need. See, the world needs Jesus. Our city needs Jesus and we need him to change our hearts and as Jesus changes people's hearts, right, that's when the church really begins to, to thrive and to grow, but the government can't do it, right? Only the gospel can do it. Only the gospel can change hearts. The government forever has tried to legislate morality, and by the way, it's a terrible legislator of morality. The greatest legislator of morality is when you surrender your life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and writes God's laws on your heart. And so now you have a new motivation for living, and it's less about you know, doing a set of rules and more about what can I do to serve and follow and to please him. But forever, right, the government's tried to do that. And I just, I'll say this, I'm sorry, but the government can't do it. Um, only the gospel of Jesus can. And by the way, when I say gospel of Jesus, I don't mean our social definitions of the gospel. You know, like uh, people will make things into the gospel, like praise God, you're a Democrat, just don't make that the gospel. Praise God, you're a Republican, just don't make that the gospel. That's not what everybody, you know, has to do. Praise God you're a, you're, you, for the way that you school your children. 
you know, homeschool or private school or public school, praise God for all of that. Just don't make that the gospel for everyone. Praise God that you're green and drive a Prius and are saving the earth and the ozone. Just don't make that the gospel, right? Praise God you're a vegan and there's more meat for the rest of us in the room. Just don't make that the gospel. The gospel is what we preach. The gospel is Jesus, perfect, without sin, came to this earth, lived, died, crucified, was buried, raised to life, and he's coming back again, and he is the only one that can make you and me right with God. That's the gospel, all right? And that's what we preach, because that's what this world desperately needs. Jesus is the only one who can change your heart. And we desperately need him to change our hearts. Colby, why is that such a big deal? Here's why that's such a big deal. Because there's a teenage girl in this room who will, who will give her virginity to some boy because he says he loves her and wants to be with her um, because she's seeking attention and approval from someone rather than surrendering her life and following and seeking uh, attention and approval from God for her identity. Unless God changes hearts. If God doesn't change hearts, there's a, a couple in here that's gonna get divorced in the next year. What are you saying? Are you some sort of prophet? No, but I've seen the stats and I've heard the conversations. Unless God really changes hearts, right? Like unless he changes hearts, someone's gonna run out of this worship experience and run to their drug of choice because they're stuck in addictions to drug or alcohol. Unless he can really change hearts. And we believe that we desperately need Jesus to change our hearts. And as he does, he changed our cities and our worlds. And so it's more than just, it's more than just a want. We need him to change our hearts. Here's, here's the last thing that I want you to write down. And that is recognition is the ignition to your new life. Jesus isn't afraid of your mess. He's not afraid of your past. He's not afraid of what you've done, even what you're doing. The Bible says that while we were stuck in sin, while we were sinning, Jesus died for us. He is somebody we desperately need, and until we recognize him, then we're stuck where we are. But recognition, recognition is how it gets started. And in verse 16, Jesus says, all right, who do, I, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter responds, and he answers, you are the Messiah. And in this moment, he gets it right. Like one of the few times Peter actually gets it right in his life. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. And blessed are you, son of Jonah. Why does it say son of Jonah? That was his, his dad's name. His dad was named after Jonah, a prophet. And if you remember him, he was a runner. He was a rebel. He ran from God. So he's saying, hey, your dad was a rebel. You, Simon, you're, you're a rebel. But today you've recognized who I am. And today you've had the right answer. You said, I'm the son of the living God. So blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And he goes on to say, so I'm gonna tell you that I'm igniting this. And on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not stand against it. In that moment, Peter recognized who Jesus was. I'm saying, I wonder if, if that's you today that maybe you understand that Jesus is not afraid of your mess, that he went to the messiest part of the planet in that day to say, I'm gonna start a church, I'm gonna start a movement for the people even inside that temple and that the world desperately needs me. If you recognize that need and then you respond by saying, I know who you are 
and I know what you've done. I think there are some people today that need to do that. In fact, I'd invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And as you do, you should know this church was planted for people just like you. People who thought they were too far gone, too much of a mess for God to love, made too many mistakes in their past. It was planted for the people who thought they were just going through the motions of, I grew up in the church, so this is what I do. But Jesus is more interested in your heart than he is in your outward appearance. Again, indicated by the fact that he didn't start his church in the center of religion, but he went to Caesarea Philippi, where it was a mess. He says, I'm going to build my church to reach people all over this world. And then as we recognize who Jesus is and what he did, what he did for Peter is he changed his name from Simon to Peter that instant. He gave him a new heart. He gave him a new motivation, gave him a new calling. He said, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. I believe God wants to do that for you as well. Give you a new name, give you a new heart, give you a new identity, something to chase after, something to pursue as you recognize who he is and what he's done for you. And maybe today you've done that. Say, all right, I understand who Jesus was. He's not just a good idea, but I desperately need him. Well, because God so loved you, he sent Jesus to die for you. And he knew that we couldn't clean ourselves up, that we were stuck in our guilt and shame and vomit, and we could not clean ourselves up. So he sent Jesus to be a covering for us, for all of our sin, past, present, and future. And the Bible says when we confess him as Lord, and we believe in the gospel that Jesus was perfect, that he was crucified, buried, risen, but also coming again. And we confess him as Lord with our, our lips and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we would be saved, saved from an eternal separation from God, but also saved to live a full life today. Maybe saved from some of the hurts that we might experience if we don't follow after him with everything that we have. Maybe you say, Colby, today I realize that my eyes are open. I know who Jesus is, and I want to respond. Well, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer. Uh, and if you'd say, Colby, when you pray that prayer, I'm praying it with you, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're just coming home to God today in this moment. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to be bold. No one's looking around, but just to lift your hand and, and just kind of saying, God, here I am. Would you do that right now, wherever you are? Now, I'm going to pray to receive Jesus. Here I am. I'm gonna recommit my life to Jesus. Here I am, just hold it up high. That's awesome. And God bless all of you. You can say something like this in your heart. Put your hands down and just surrender your life. Jesus, I know why you came to this earth and I can't say thank you enough for meeting me right in the middle of my mess, for meeting me here in this moment. So Jesus, I recognize you for who you are. Just like Simon Peter, you are the son of the living God. You are Lord. Just tell him that again. I confess you as Lord and as Savior. I know that you died for my sins, so I repent, God. And I ask you to forgive me. And from this moment on, I'm gonna do my best to live for you. I believe God raised you from the dead so that I could be raised to new life, so I could have a, a new heart and a fresh start. Give me a new name. Give me a new identity in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church, celebrate with those today that made the best decision of their life.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you made a decision to follow Jesus into your life and accept him as Lord and Savior, we would love to know about it. You can go online to elevatechurch.com forward slash yes, and there will be some practical next steps for you to take along this journey. If you want to commit to fueling the mission and vision of this church to see people far from God reach their full potential in Christ, you can go online to elevatechurch.com forward slash give.